Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Five years ago, Christian Carroll, an American journalist, published a book entitled Strange Rebels, 1979 and the Birth of the 21st Century. It was a compelling story that analyzed the rise of Margaret Thatcher, John Paul II, the Ayatollah Khomeini, Deng Xiaoping, in that one remarkable year. He called these people strange rebels, thinkers and actors that gave voice to a tremendous demand for change. It was, in a way, the beginning and the end of what some people have called the short 20th century. In Canada, we had a strange rebel of our own who rose to prominence, and that was Joe Clark, where upon the 40th anniversary of the 1979 election, in the annals of politics, it's not at first glance a significant event, mostly because the government that was elected as a result only lasted nine months. But it does deserve to be remembered for a number of reasons. With me today is Matthew Hayday, professor of history at the University of Guelph. Hayday is the author of many books, including a recent two-volume co-edition with Raymond Blake entitled Celebrating Canada, published at the University of Toronto Press, and So They Want Us to Learn French, Promoting and Opposing Bilingualism in English-Speaking Canada, which was published by UBC Press. Matthew Hayday is also the co-editor of the Canadian Historical Review, and he is at work on a biography of Joe Clark. We reached him at his office at the University of Guelph. Professor Hayday, welcome to the mic. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the 1979 election. Uh, it has now moved into history. I remember it vividly because it was the first election in which I voted, but for most Canadians, this event belongs to the memory of their parents. You're looking at this as a historian and as a biographer of Joe Clark. What was the event's significance in your view? I think the significance of it is that and it's a break in the Trudeau years. A very, it, it signals a very brief break because the government doesn't end up falling, but one that potentially uh, could have changed the course of history in light of what ended up happening in the early 1980s with the, the Quebec referendum, the passage of the Charter of Rights and Freedom. So it's almost, you could almost view it as a, an alternate history in which Joe Clark managed to win a majority government and cling to power for much longer. Um, but it's also symbolic of a different period or emblematic of a different period uh, in the history of the Progressive Conservative Party, where a very different type of conservative politics were being espoused. To remind our listeners, the election took place on May 22nd, 1979. This was just a few weeks after Margaret Thatcher was elected, was it not? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Were the Tories elected? Were, they, were the Tories ready for the election in 1979? The Tories were chafing at the bit for an election. As, as I've been reading through things like caucus minutes, they desperately wanted an election, and they wanted it the year before, because normally you would be on the four-year cycle with the government, and you would have expected an election to come in 1978. That's right. The Liberals were actually abusing the parliamentary term. They, they were <laughs> well, in their they, fifth year. They stretched they, out. They, they, they were within the technicalities right. of the five-year right. rule, but the, the expectation was that it was going to happen the year before. And there was really a morale problem starting to grow within the Conservative caucus in 1978 as they were you know, riding high in the polls thinking that they were ready to crush Trudeau and the Liberals at the moment was theirs, and they just kept having to wait and wait and wait, and they had this whole election strategy in place for how they were going to handle it. Um, they, were, they were very ready and eager to, to go to the polls by 1979. But what was their campaign about? Did they have a particular theme? Uh, the, uh, the theme was largely focused around the economy uh, and issues of unemployment and trying to rein in the, what they were casting as you know, the, the very spendy ways of the Trudeau government uh, that had proven completely unable to cope with the twin problems of uh, inflation and economic stagnation. Yeah, stagflation, yes. Yeah, stagflation, um, <laughs> a word I always have to explain to my students. <laughs> uh, but they were also very conscious of the fact that they had to be careful how they framed the election. 
because national unity was going to be a tricky issue for them to deal with. Um, and the polls were sort of up and down in terms of how competent they were seen for dealing with that. But leadership was a problem, too, that you know, when it came to Pierre Trudeau, even if people hated him, they still thought that he had a certain je ne sais quoi about leadership capacity and that he was a strong leader. And all the polls that were being taken in this period, uh, this is when Alan Gregg was the, the poll master for the conservatives, showed that Joe Clark trailed terribly when it came to issues of leadership. Well, tell us about Joe Clark. Who was Joe Clark? Joe who? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the... The, the tagline that the Toronto Star slapped him with the morning after his win. The murderous uh, that, that, that Toronto haunted Star. haunted him to this day. Uh, <laughs> Who was Joe Clark? Uh, Who is Joe Clark? What was and is are almost, I mean, I don't know that I would say they were, they were different things, but how, how he's perceived at the time versus how he's perceived now are very different yes. things. And Joe Clark was the first Western Canadian-born uh, prime minister, and that was part of his appeal as he's coming to the leadership of the Conservative Party in the mid-1970s. He's raised in High River, Alberta, which is a small rural community just south of Calgary. But he's coming from a quite educated family. His father was the editor of the High River Times, so very tightly connected to community-based issues in that community. His mother had been a school teacher before that part. He's kind of, I, I think it would be fair to say that he was a, a very bookish type growing up. He's not, uh, you know, the, the athlete uh, of, of the sort, you know, like, like a John Turner type in, in that respect. He's more interested in books, mm -hmm. very keenly interested in politics, and quite good at public speaking. But he becomes a political animal very early in his life. And that's part of how he rises within the Conservative Party is he starts off with involvement uh, in the youth wings of the party, uh, eventually becoming the president of the Progressive Conservative Youth Federation, which gets him he has an interesting role introducing John Diefenbaker to the party's annual meeting when Diefenbaker is on the downswing, um, but that's another story. Uh, but he then goes on to work on leadership campaigns. Uh, he works with uh, Davy Fulton when he was running for the B.C. Uh, Conservative Party leadership. He's involved with Peter Lougheed's provincial campaigns. He's a speechwriter for Robert Stanfield. Very entrenched in the party workings of the Progressive Conservative Party. And that's a large part of how he rises within the party. He's not a, a very high-profile public figure, but he has extensive breadth of connections across the country with key people, um, which is why he's able to ultimately win in a multi-ballot convention uh, in 1976, being now, out. Let's talk so about, he would actually lead. Let's talk about that. It was a very decisive but divisive convention in 76. The people who ran, uh, he was running against included Brian Mulroney and uh, Claude Wagner from Quebec. A lot of people were surprised that Joe Clark, at the end of the day, was the compromise candidate. Can we call him that? I, I think you absolutely can call him that. I mean, when, when he decided to run, he only had like a, literally a couple of sitting MPs who backed him for the leadership. He was not the choice of, uh, of the caucus. He was not seen as the default front runner, but he was very well liked and well connected across the board, and he wasn't a polarizing figure in the way that, you know, Claude Wagner had this sort of law and order crowd behind him, but was viewed as very, you know, very cold figure. Not uh, didn't have a lot of second ballot support. Brian Mulroney at that point made the mistake of being too flashy and too slick, mm -hmm. uh, which did him in. I mean, I would say if this if that convention had been held in a different decade. Clark probably wouldn't have been the one who'd won. Flora McDonald probably would have taken it. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, because she had a lot of the same attributes that Clark did in terms of her appeal to a certain segment of the party and deep, deep party roots, but her gender worked against her. Now, well, it's an important point to underline. 
You you say that Clark was sort of up and down uh, in terms of the polls. People did like the Conservative Party in 1979, according to the polls, but he personally had uh, some issues in terms of how he was perceived as a leader. How was he received nationally? I mean, he did, as you say, I mean, he did come out of nowhere to win this leadership. Um, he's been in the leadership by that point by th- for, for almost three years. How was he perceived in the media in 1979? This is a really important part of what I'm looking at with Clark's political career, because the media plays a, a huge role in terms of crafting the image of him that he has. In the early years, because he's first elected in 1972, there is a lot of very positive coverage of him in the media, that he is profiled in a few pieces as emblematic of a new type of Western Canadian politician, uh, because you know he's made efforts to learn French, he seems to have an interest in national issues, he doesn't fit the, the cowboy stereotype that a lot of central Canadian media tended to have about uh, politicians from Alberta. Uh, who viewed them as sort of like, you know, wingnuts, social creditist types. Mm-hmm. And so he initially gets some of this positive coverage, and even as a possible dark horse candidate um, for the leadership prior to winning it. And then in the years following that, like literally the day after, the Toronto Star's cover page reads, Joe Who. Um, and there's almost, I hesitate to, to use this phrasing for it, but it's almost like there's resentment on the part of central Canadian media that he had managed to win this convention and surprise the conventional wisdom mm. that they didn't think that he should be the leader. And the hostility grows over the course of the years. Um, that there's a lot of discussion of him as being forgettable or weak. Without explicitly saying as much, they are calling into question his strength and his masculinity. Uh, there's this whole ugly narrative about the fact that his wife, Maureen McTeer, had chosen to keep her own last name. That is, I hate to to phrase it this way, but they're basically saying he doesn't have control of his wife. Mm. And if he can't control his wife, how is he going to lead the country? Is the subtext that's that's running under this, um, you know, there... I can, you know, cite you examples from the press, you know, someone who refers to, you know, the image of, and this is from the Ottawa Citizen, the the chinless, skinny, and lonely kid from High River. You know, that's the way they're writing about him. It's not a positive image that's built up. And it's especially in sort of the Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa-based media that tends to cover him this way. Let's talk about the Liberals then. I mean, because, again, 1979 involved all, involved four parties. Let's Let's remember that. It also involved the NDP. Uh, led by um, Mr. Broadbent, Ed Broadbent, who had been leader for a few years already. Uh, and, of course, this, you said the social credit, the Crédit Social, is still very much an active part in the election. But let's talk about the Liberals. What was the state of the Liberal Party at that point? By this point, the Liberals are clinging to power by their fingernails. Mm-hmm. 1978 was a bad year for the Liberals in terms of a, a big run of by-election losses for them. The economy was stagnant. Trudeau was seen as arrogant and out of touch. You know, they'd finally introduced the wage and price controls, but that wasn't fixing things. Um, you know, Quebec had just elected René Lévesque. Well, by 1979, it was a couple of years in the sure. past, but you know, the sense that Trudeau is necessarily going to be able to confront the sovereignist forces is, is an open question. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of, not necessarily a lot of confidence that he can, but also a sense that perhaps he might be able to spin himself as the strong leader who can stand up to Quebec. Uh, in, in the event of, of a referendum. It's not, they're, they're not a confident party heading into that election, and the fact that it's held in year five is very much a sign sign of that. The NDP, the NDP under Ed Broadbent had been, uh, Ed Broadbent had been leader since uh, July of 1975. What was the state of the NDP? I, I, I honestly can't tell you, I haven't focused my research so far a lot on the specifics of, of the campaign. Okay. Um, the, 
the perspective that the conservatives had of the NDP was that they, they were kind of a wild card. They didn't have a sense of how how much of the vote the NDP would attract. And the conservatives were planning to be quite careful in terms of how they approached the NDP because they were the impression, and the fact that Clark's leader matters for this, that the progressive conservatives were likely the second choice for a lot of NDP voters, right. uh, that they weren't going to necessarily flock to Trudeau and the liberals, that they might actually be wooed by a more moderate progressive conservative party. And the committees were viewed as kind of, you know, they're still there, but not viewed as a significant force. Also, you know, potential seats to be picked up by one of the other parties. And again, let's, let's remind our listeners that the social credit, the Crédit Social, is a strictly Quebec party at this point, is it not? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean we, we say social credit in English, but it is, it is very much social, the, yeah, the, yes. the radimal creditist at this point. Right. Um, and they're viewed as sort of quite, quite. A, I mean, it's it's a rather erratic caucus, um, <laughs> even after that, that election. Well, we'll get to that in a second. What What is the, so the Tories do win the election on May 22nd. Uh, they take 136 seats. It's a minority. Clark managed to win 38 seats more than the Tories had before. The Liberals take 114 seats, which is 19 seats less than what they had. Why did the Tories win? But win in, 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 a, in quotation marks, but they did win. Was it what, what factor do you think made it possible for the Tories to take the victory this time? There was massive frustration with Trudeau. It was... Most accounts of that election say it was a vote against the Liberals rather than Mm -hmm. a vote for Joe Clark. The fact that so much of Quebec, the Quebec vote stayed with the Liberal and almost certainly all that kept the Conservatives out of majority government territory. And that despite the fact that Clark, like Stanfield before him, had been making major efforts to try to make inroads into that province to be more accommodating. I mean, frankly, between Trudeau and Clark, Clark was far more open to the idea of, of being more flexible in terms of dealing with the Quebec government than Trudeau was. But it did not translate into seats, despite his best efforts. Well, and, and this, again, it's interesting. When you look at the results, I mean, the Tories do extremely well in Western Canada, and perhaps Joe Clark did make a difference. Although they'll, they'll take much of British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, but they're almost entirely shut out of Quebec, aren't they? they there's only two seats that go conservative. Almost in completely. And, and, it's, and it's a longstanding source of frustration for, for Clark. I've been doing interviews with him as part of this project mm-hmm. that, you know, there, there is a, the sense, uh, you know, the Quebec media is actually quite kind to him. Like he, he was praised for the quality of his French in a newspaper than Le Devoir back in 1975. Um, he is seen as being open to them. They're quite kind to him. The Quebec voting population does not reward him in that election. And you can say the same thing about the Maritimes. I mean, with the exception of New Brunswick, uh, the Tories do, and Newfoundland, I should say, yes, uh, the Tories do well. I mean, they do well. They, they, they win PEI, they win Nova Scotia. With the exception of Quebec, Clark obviously had a following in Western Canada, in Ontario, and in, in the Maritimes. Well, absolutely. Uh, but also, those are all regions. I mean, right. It, 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 there, there is a very negative dimension to the election as well in terms of it being an, an anti-Trudeau one. But the, mes- the message about the economy is definitely resonating. Sure. Um, you know, this, this is the major line that they try to push is that you know, they are going to try to reel in government spending, that they are going to try to address some of these problems that are making life hard for the middle class. Um, you know, they will end up having trouble when they try to implement this in the budget. <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's rhetoric that is you know, at least enough to convince voters to give Clark and the Progressive Conservatives a chance, but on a you know a 
fairly tight leash. And he only gets one chance. You mentioned the budget, and I, let's race a little bit further, a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but the government is defeated uh, in that same year, in December of 1979. I'm asking you as a historian, do you think the government deserved to be defeated? Did it deserve it, or was it just bad luck? What's your thinking? I mean, it's interesting. This is the sort of thing that literally has gone down to become a moment that, you know, there's Canadian playwright Michael Healy has dramatized this evening in his uh, play 1979 about the night of the budget vote. And all sorts of mythology has gone around about, you know, was Clark even able to count the number of votes, um, which I think you know, does, really doesn't give his government credit for, for what happened there. I would say the government knew that there was a risk, a strong risk that they were going to be defeated. I don't think that they fully grasped the extent to which the liberals were going to be willing to take them on with that, given that Pierre Trudeau had actually stepped down from the leadership. Right. I think they thought that they would be given more more breathing space. Um, but there's also a really important piece of what happens that evening, because there, you know, if you look at what's been written about that election, there were procedural tactics that could have been used either to delay that vote or to try to have a motion to set aside the vote, you know, say that, oh, you know, there was some procedural wrangling that could happen. That is very much not in Clark's character. And you see that throughout his career that he, you know, say what you will about him, there is a core integrity that people always speak about and an honesty and a forthrightness that he would rather do things by the books and above board and not engage in political shenanigans. And I think that he actually believed, like, by the time he got to the budget, they had not managed to pass much in the way of legislation. There is a need to actually be seen to have done something in their first year. Yes. And Clark famously delayed the opening of Parliament because he wanted to get things done. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and at the core of that budget is this, right. this measure of the fuel tax that's tied in <laughs> to two key issues, one of which is trying to rein in the deficit. Right. But the other piece is you know, a quite serious commitment to energy conservation that runs through a lot of symmetry that's happening over the course of 1979. Mm. There is a sense on the part of key people within the Clark government and Clark himself that Canada could no longer um, afford to, to you know, prop up fuel consumption well below, you know, charging Canadians below the world price in a way that was going to encourage them to use far more and be dependent on external sources. Right. So, and that's ultimately what topples him is the NDP amendment to the, uh, the Liberals' budget motion on that issue. If you can picture this, the progressive conservatives fell, at least in part, and I would say in large part, because of an energy conservation measure that was introduced as part of their budget that did have a promise for a rebate for low-income earners. It's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, this was a progressive like, measure. It is, um, and it. I mean, this is a period where they are progressive conservatives. Yes. Clark is not ideological, and nor are a lot of the key senior people within the party in this period. It's a very different. It is a progressive conservative party, not just a conservative party. I mentioned at the outset Christian Carroll's book uh, entitled "Strange Rebels," and some might say that the strange rebel was not, in fact, Clark, but Pierre Trudeau because he did come back, and of course, lots has been written about Pierre Trudeau. The Tory year in power was told by Jeffrey Simpson in his book, Discipline of Power. What attracts you, Matthew, as a historian, to the story of Joe Clark? I think there's a few key pieces here. One is that historians, certainly in the last few decades, have not been looking at the history of conservative parties and conservative politics in Canada, certainly not in the post-war period. There's been some journalistic work, but most of the literature that's being produced by professional historians in the university context is all 
Liberal and NDP. And I think there's a huge gap here in a party that actually has played a fundamental role in shaping Canadian politics and political culture and political life. And it's not my personal politics that's being reflected by them, mm-hmm. but it's a thread that I think has been neglected that's really important. And Clark is key to one of the key tensions and transitions that's part of this, which is this war, not to overstate the case, but you know, this this battle between the red Tory compassionate side of conservatism that is not particularly ideological, that thinks that there can be a role for the state in social welfare um, against, you know, the the neoliberal pro-business social conservative side that comes to attach itself to the Reform Party, Canadian Alliance, and then new conservative party tradition. And it's playing out throughout the period that Clark's involved in politics. Clark's political career active political career bans over 40 years. You can it's basically a long trace career. Yes. Canadian politics from, the, from 1960 through to the mid-2000s, yeah. through the lens of his career, which is kind of what I'm trying to do with this project. And I'm drawn to him personally. There, There is this almost a redemption narrative mm-hmm. <laughs> of him that, you know, the early years where he, you know, he, he was Joe Who, he falls on the budget. You know, if the story had ended in 1980, it would be a very negative story told about Joe Clark's political career. But then he reinvents himself as a very successful cabinet minister, Indeed. very trusted cabinet minister Indeed. in the Mulroney years, yes. both in external affairs and then in constitutional affairs, and then comes back to try to be the standard bearer for this type of progressive conservatism uh, when he re, uh, when he once again becomes leader of the of the party uh, at the end of the 1990s. Um, and even now is viewed as a senior elder statesman who's viewed as kind of above partisan par- politics. Well, he turns 80 years old this year. Yep. I have and to he's, ask far, you, he's more active than I am. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm blown away at how actively engaged he still is on a number of different fronts. That's great news. I have to ask you a Champlain Society question, and that's about documentation. Um, what, what are the sources available to you? Are you satisfied with what material? You talked a little bit about caucus minutes, which surprises me. Tell us about your documentation. Um, I negotiated access with Mr. Clark to his massive uh, personal papers at Library and Archives Canada. Um, to give you a sense of the volume of those papers, um, the finding aid alone is over a thousand pages long. Wow! So it's you know meters upon meters of boxes collected over the span of his career. Um, he has facilitated access to me getting uh, a look at key cabinet minutes and cabinet committee minutes from his time in the Mulroney government as well. There's ample media material and. I'm lucky that there are still some key people available for interviews uh, to do a, lot, a fairly significant oral history component of it. There are some gaps. Not not all of the uh, periods have the same wealth of official documentation. Things like caucus committee minutes. I have a few years of them, but depending on who takes the minutes, they can be more or less thorough. But I'm certainly getting a, a fairly rich view of his history. And then his family, because his father was a journalist, he was very much a collector of documentation. So some <laughs> good stuff at the Glenbow Archives in Calgary that's helping with this as well. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you, Matthew, for sharing your thoughts on the uh, 1979 election, the 40th anniversary. I think it's uh, very helpful to all our listeners. Thank you. Happy to have been here. I was speaking with Matthew Hayday, professor of history at the University of Guelph. He's the author of many books and the co-editor of the Canadian Historical Review. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. 
Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on January 28, 2019, and it was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.